Uh, a few things I just want to say up front. I am not an expert on marriage. I'm an expert on sin, and I see my need for Jesus. I am uh, married. Julie and I have been married now, uh, going on 13 years this summer, and we have three children, as you know. Uh, and so this is a great privilege to teach on something that I have tasted and experienced for a little over a decade. Uh, but what I share today uh, will be mostly from God's Word, a little bit on my own experience. And then I pray that the principles that you hear will be applied to your own marriage, regardless if in, you're in your first year or your 40th year of marriage. Uh, one thing you're going to find, though, in these three talks, there's many more things that could be said. Uh, these are only three talks. Uh, when I do marriage counseling, I mean, generally speaking, depending on uh, how long the couple's been married or what the situations may be, this could go on for years. And so the uh, topics can go much deeper. Uh, there's a lot more um, complexities to marriage than the things I'll say this morning. Uh, there's different challenges and different scenarios that each married couple will face that I literally cannot touch in one talk or in one morning on this. Uh, but I do think God's word is sufficient. I do believe God's word speaks to the very backbone and foundation of what our marriages should be about. And so that's what I hoped that this morning we'll all walk away with a better understanding of God's thoughts about marriage, about communication in marriage, and about sexual intimacy in marriage. Uh, what we'll do is I'll do three talks. Uh, open up for any Q&A, of course, if you don't have any questions or you just, for whatever reason, you're more embarrassed to ask the question now or you feel like you'll get a jab to your rib if you ask it, uh, that is totally fine. I would use discretion uh, not to embarrass your spouse with a question. You can always ask me in an email, a uh, hallway conversation, or any other time. So just know that ahead. Let me open us up in prayer, and then we will get cranked up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We do thank you for the food you've provided. Lord, thank you for even the cold weather and the snow and the sky. Lord, we know that you cause the ground to have dew on the grass and cause that water to freeze, the, the birds to eat, Lord, the wind to go in the direction it is because you will it. Uh, Lord, we know that you are sovereign over creation and you are sovereign over your good gift of marriage that you created. Lord, marriage is a good gift. We know in Scripture that it is he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Uh, Lord, we also know that marriage can have many troubles, many challenges when two sinners come together under one roof. Lord, in this room, I imagine there are a variety of joys and a variety of challenges each of us are facing as married couples. Uh, some of us are here, Lord, because things are going well, but they simply want to have their marriage encouraged and refreshed to continue doing what is pleasing in your sight. We do pray that for those who are well in their marriage today, uh, that they would rejoice in that, but also take initiative to encourage other married couples who may not be in the same place. Lord, I also want to pray for those who are suffering, uh, whether it's a chronic illness or maybe the grief of a parent or loved one. Uh, Lord, it is a challenge to bear up another's burdens, and we pray that each husband and each wife would see the great privilege we have in carrying one another's burdens. And Lord, we also know that sin uh, is certainly a part of the challenges that we face in marriage. Uh, we are our 
worst enemy. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would convict us this morning. Uh, Lord, remind us of things that we've forgotten. Uh, Sharpen us, encourage us, cause our mind to be renewed after your thoughts. Lord, I pray that our church will be marked by healthy marriages and healthy families that apply the gospel to their everyday life. Father, I do ask that you would give us now understanding as we approach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So my guess is that you're here because, well, you're curious. We've never had one of these at CCBC because, well, five months ago we didn't exist. Others of you are here because you're screaming for help. You've been tapping out on the wrestling turnbuckle going, Pastor, Pastor, I need some help. I'll take any conference you can give us. And some of you think you're doing well, but your spouse is the problem, and you came here to try to fix your spouse. Well, if that's you, you need to repent, because that will not help you very much. Uh, Truth in advertising, I think I've done all three at different points in my own marriage, and so I speak to you as someone uh, that understands where you might be. Uh, This morning, I want to start off asking the question, is my marriage, and for you, is your marriage built upon the foundation of God's Word? Or is your marriage built upon something else? Each one of us, when we're married, whether we had a long dating and engagement or it was super quick, we all brought suitcases of baggage into our marriage. Baggage we saw from the way we were raised, baggage from things we've seen in Hollywood, or baggage just from our own insecurities and deficiencies, we have all brought something into marriage, and each one of us came into marriage having an understanding of marriage. Some of those things are lined up with God's Word, and oftentimes many of them were not. But before we talk about marriage, I don't want to assume each one of us have a good understanding of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. You know, on one level, these should be pretty simple questions, right? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? I mean, most of us probably had middle or high school biology class to figure out quite quickly there are two different sexes, male and female. Uh, But also in the last probably 50 years, ever since Uh, really the sexual revolution of the 60s all the way into the last 10 to 15 years where our culture is radically confused on the whole idea of gender identity. Uh, One of the controversial things of our day are boys and girls restrooms. This might not be a big deal in Fort Smith, Arkansas, but in the big world out there, it's a controversial topic on you get determined what sex you are or what gender you want to be. And restrooms now have these really strange and ambiguous signs at the door. You know, even beyond the question of our physical bodies, we've got to wrestle with that right, lightning rod debate on what a real man is and what a real woman is. But one of the things that I learned when I was in Washington, D.C., being a melting pot as it was, not everyone grew up with Christian mom and dads. In fact, when we would drop our kids off to school at our local public school, it was not uncommon to see two women or two men dropping off a child to their classroom. Uh, Not only that, but we have a total confusion in our culture 
of a reversal of what men and women's roles should be in the home. Uh, For example, (laughs) feminist gurus tell women to lean in, break the glass ceiling, sit at the head of the boardroom, all while raising perfectly balanced Harvard-bound kids on a diet of organic macaroni and cheese and kale. Men are told to get in touch with their feminine side. In recent years, TV shows such as Orange is the New Black and Transparent suggest that things like gender can be fluid and traditional gender roles can be abandoned. But these ads in between the shows still show that even in our fallen culture, there are some traditional gender roles or gender gender stereotypes that are still kind of upheld. So when you watch a Ford or Chevy truck show or commercial, generally you still see a man driving a pickup truck or maybe a woman spraying the Febreze. Even amidst all the confusion, there is still an ingrained in us some stereotypes that we might be more traditionally familiar with. Uh, My point in citing stereotypes like these isn't necessarily to endorse them. What I'm suggesting that is in our culture, it's not easy to answer my opening question. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? If you went to the University of Arkansas 20, 30, 40 years ago, I guarantee if you walk on that campus today and you ask that question, you might get a very different answer in the average freshman class. Our world today is rightly outraged at ongoing harassment and abuse and violence committed between the genders, especially against men, our men against women, uh, from Hollywood studios to gymnastic medical offices. uh, People are even asking if men can be trusted anymore. So brothers and sisters, is there a vision, according to God's word, of gender that is actually good for human flourishing? And that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Before we talk about marriage, we have to understand how God made us as men and women. But let me first define some terms, just so I don't assume. First, let me explain how I'm using that word gender. As I've mentioned, some today differentiate between sex and gender, arguing that sex is only a biological feature to our lives. And... Uh, psychological and behavior aspects, and I understand what people mean by that. Uh, However, that is not how I'm going to interpret. I understand that distinction. That is how many employ these terms now, but what I want to argue in this talk is that gender is more comprehensive than simply our biological sex. It includes the sex of our bodies, but it also includes the dispositions that God has designed us to have as men and women. So I'm going to use that term gender today to refer both to our sexual differentiation as men and women and the dispositions and roles that God has given us. Now, some expressions of gender are cultural. Uh, They're not in the Bible. They're really not a part of God's design. For example, dressing boys in blue-colored clothes. Well, there's nothing in the Bible on that. Or girls in pink Uh, Those things can be interchangeable. I have pink shirts in my house, but I feel fully comfortable in my masculinity wearing a pink shirt. Uh, To start off on the right foot, we need to rely on the sufficiency of Scripture, as I've already stated. Uh, This teaches that not only is the Bible authoritative, but it is sufficient to guide us and instruct us in all ways to honor God. 
That's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that the scriptures equip the man of God for every good work. And that would certainly apply to how we understand ourselves as men and women and also marriage. So to kind of walk with you through this, there are going to be some notes or outline on the screen. First, we're going to look at creation. Before we can talk about marriage, we got to go back to the beginning. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, it's the first page in your Bible. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to kind of state the obvious of Genesis 1. God creates the heavens and the earth, right there, verse 1. And then in verse 2, it says the earth was without form and void. Uh, As you read the creation account, the first three days are days of forming. God makes and separates light from darkness, water from the sky, and land from water. The next three days of the creation account are days of filling. God fills the heavens with lights, the waters and seas with fish and birds, and the land with creatures. And then the creation account climaxes in verses 26 to 28. This would be important to pay attention to these. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then drop down to verse 31, the last verse of chapter 1. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Listen, that means that gender, maleness, and femaleness is God's idea. Not modern science, not your biology professor, Not someone who's trying to get in touch with their feminine or male side, even if it contradicts their own biological makeup. Gender is a part of God's perfect and beautiful design. Now again, look at verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. I want you to also notice that the Bible doesn't start with the differences between men and women, but their equality. This is a foundational truth for mankind because we are all created equally in the image of God. Now, what does that exactly mean? Well, I don't have time to unpack a a whole sermon series on the Imago Dei or the image of God, but a few things that we can note just from this passage on what it means to be created in God's image. At first, it's really describing the essence of who we are. We are not like trees. We are not like animals in that sense. We are the only part of God's creation that is made in his image, men and women. Um, Secondly, the image of God defines our function. So not only is it our personhood and our soul, we are real beings that God breathed life into us, 
but we are image bearers who do something. We are called to fulfill some type of function in the world. And I want you to notice right there in Genesis 1, it's very clear, men men and women are to have dominion over the earth, to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, we're not God, we're not little gods, like Mormon theology may teach, but we do stand as God's representatives in the world. The invisible God has made himself known through creation, but he's also put his image bearers on the earth to rule the world as his own vice regents or stewards of his creation. And third, the image of God marks us as relational beings. Notice verse 27 again. He says male and female, he created them. The God of scripture that we read about is a relational God. Uh, One God existing in three persons in perfect love and harmony. Uh, So it makes sense that God would express his race, his image in a race that is differentiated. Uh, Humanity has a male kind and a female kind. And we'll see in Genesis chapter 2, these two kinds, when done God's way, actually complement one another. But again, according to Genesis 1, every man and every woman are made in the image of the one true God. And I say that because not everyone has grown up in a culture or in a household where they viewed men and women as equal image bearers before God. There have been cultures around the world uh, that have made women like doormats and inferior to men. Uh, And it's this egotistical, patriarchal view that the Bible actually condemns. And so one of the uh, objections that atheists and other skeptics of the Bible will basically say is that if you read the Bible, uh, the Bible depicts kind of a chauvinistic view of men and degrades women. And it's just an erroneous view of how they view scripture. Uh, So we're going to look at here, right here in Genesis 1 and 2, that that is far from God's design. Men and women are both created equal in God's image. And nowhere does the Bible say that men are more in God's image than women. Uh, From the very first page, the Bible opposes the errors of sinful male dominance and oppression that we see in so many cultures and throughout history. Uh, If God defines us as equal in value, that forever forever settles uh, the matter of self-worth. So go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Two. So if Genesis chapter 1 shows us kind of the Google Earth view of creation, kind of the zoomed out view, the high level of how he made us, Genesis 2 zooms into the Google Street view. It helps us kind of get down on the ground level into the sixth day of creation and see how these events unfolded. I want you to listen to Genesis 2 verse 15, and then we're going to look at verses 18 to 24. Genesis 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. All right, go to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. 
But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What's interesting is both the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself quotes from Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2 when teaching on marriage as well as roles in the local church. Uh, You can look up passages like Matthew chapter 19 and 1 Timothy 2 to see how they apply this text. Uh, That means what we read about in Genesis 1 and 2 are universally applied. They're timeless. It's not just a pre-fall thing. It's not just a, well, that was before sin entered the world, and so after sin enters the world, we can just do whatever we want. No, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, when they're teaching on roles of leadership and headship in the home, And in the church, they quote, sometimes verbatim, from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. However, I do want to show you some differences. This might be the most technical I get in teaching on this topic. The differences between how God made men and women. And they're not arbitrary. So let me just name off several, and they should be up on the screen. First, God created the man first and put him in the garden before Eve was created. That's significant. You can see that later, how Paul deals with that. Number two, God gave the man the authority to name the animals. Number three, God created the woman after the man and literally from the man's rib. Remember, man was uh, created from the dust of the earth and woman from his side. Number four, the man names the woman. Number five, God charged the man to work and keep the garden. His name Adam, or Adam, refers to the ground from which he was formed in Hebrew, which means Adamah. So there's a direct correlation to where he was created and what he would do with his work. Number six, God made the woman as a helper fit for the man. Uh, Her name, uh, woman, can refers uh, refers to the man from which she was taken, Ish and Isha. You can see that wordplay there. And number seven, the man and the woman correspond to one another such that in marriage they form a unity or a one flesh. You can see right there in Genesis 2, verse 24. So the charge that God gave the first man and the first woman, uh, which is again universally applied, and it's a timeless truth in Genesis 1, is foundational to how we are made in God's image. Uh, This charge had two related parts exercise dominion over the earth, and be fruitful and multiply. And what we see here in Genesis chapter 2 is that while the man and woman need each other to jointly fulfill this mandate, uh, they seem to be created with distinct strengths to be able to do that mission, that creation mandate. In verse 15, the man works the ground and it says he keeps or he guards God's dwelling place. Uh, This seems to imply a leaning towards exercising dominion. He can't fulfill that 
a command, though, to be fruitful and multiply alone. He needs the woman as his helper. It's no wonder he names her Eve or life, as her name means in Genesis 3.20, because she plays a special role in bringing about life. Now, it's subtle, but Adam's disposition of how he's made up physiologically and all the things that we just read, it seems to correspond to God's work of forming in days one to three in creation. He names the animals. He rules over the animals, just as God named the lights and the heaven and the land. Eve's disposition, her basic makeup, corresponds more closely to God's filling in days four to six. And it's primarily through her that the couple will be fruitful and fill the earth. In other words, at the risk of stating the obvious, Genesis 1 and 2 depict men and women as equal bearers of the image of God, both with distinct strengths that fulfill this creation mandate. Uh, There is a leadership role for Adam in the marriage. Again, he names his wife. And implicitly, he is responsible for communicating God's word to his wife. So in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17 that I skipped, look down with me. After God put Adam, the man, in the garden, notice what else he instructed the man to do. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here it's very clear to us that God gives him the law, the instructions, the prohibition, and the really the the opportunity to enjoy God's creation. God gives that to the man before even the woman is made. In the next chapter, God will hold who accountable? When the couple sins. Anybody know their Bibles? Who does God call out on the carpet? Adam, right? He calls out Adam. Adam, where are you? Here we see that even though Eve sinned first, Adam is held responsible for the couple as a whole. And yet the woman here is that relational center of gravity for their whole family. We learn that a man will leave his father and his mother and form a new family unit by clinging to her. She is the man's helper. And this is a lofty calling indeed. Uh, In doing premarital counseling, uh, it wasn't uncommon that probably every other couple that I would go through in my last church, the woman had some difficulties with that idea of being a helper. Maybe she grew up in a family where the husband was uber passive or the dad was totally absent. And so this idea of helper felt more kind of like, you know, daddy's little helper in the shed or mommy's little helper in the kitchen. And it kind of felt a little inferiority and trite. But listen, God himself is called the helper to his people. In Psalm 54.4, David says, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Or in the New Testament, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is called the helper. John 14, 26. So the word helper here 
is not a description of inferiority or some kind of trite throwaway term. It is actually one of dignity and value that she adds to the marriage. And we should notice, too, that God's orderly created design is consistent with these dispositions. I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious. When you look at an average man or an average woman, given no unique genetic uh, d- distinctions that may be there, um, men typically have higher testosterone levels, uh, different bone structure, different muscle structure. Uh, God made us that way on purpose. Uh, when you look at prisons, if you look in the last 30 years, you know, prisons are filled with way more men than women. It's not because women are less evil than men. It's just, generally speaking, most murders happen with men involved because there's this aggression and this physical dominance that takes place amongst men. Uh, again, when you look at men and women, just how we are physically made, it shouldn't surprise us then that when Peter instructs and encourages husbands to love their wives and to dwell with them in an understanding way, he calls them the weaker vessel. Uh, that doesn't mean they're more sinful. It just means they're made with a distinct uh, difference from the man, one that he is to protect her and guard her. A, a physical makeup, an emotional makeup that is designed for family building and nurturing. What we see here, though, is the difference uh, between men and women uh, in roles in marriage doesn't mean that men and women are somehow lesser or greater in value. Again, God sometimes helps his people, but that doesn't mean that God is less than his own people. Uh, These descriptions are part of God's wisdom and God's creativity and how he made us. Letter B, the fall. So we've looked at the goodness of God's creation, how he made us as men and women. Let's turn now to Genesis chapter 3, where all of this went wrong in some ways. Tragically, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. In fact, their disobedience was the result of God's created order being turned upside down by his own creatures. Here's one big point I want you to take away this morning. The woman listens to the serpent. The man listens to his wife. And neither of them listen to God. What's wrong with our marriages? That. In some shape or form, somewhere along the way, all of us are listening to someone or something that is not God. And that's what happened right there in the creation account. God issues a curse upon creation. Adam, who was called to work the garden, will now find that his work in the garden will be very difficult as he tries to exercise dominion over the earth. You can see that in Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18. Uh, He who came from the ground will still relate to the ground and draw food from it, but his relationship with the ground will be frustrated. So if you've ever moaned and groaned about going to work on Monday, behold, this is why. Work's not a curse that God put on creation. Work is a good thing. Work was established before the fall, but the difficulties and the frustrations with work are the result of the fall. And notice how Adam will return to the ground in death 
from which he came from. Genesis 3, verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Similarly, the woman who was to help the couple be fruitful and multiply will now find this calling challenging for herself too. Look at verse 16. To the woman, God says, I will surely multiply. Interesting, that's the same word used in Genesis 1. To be fruitful and multiply. The Lord says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You know, in this next phrase, we see that she who came from the man will now still relate to the man and draw forth children together. However, her relationship to the man will be frustrated too. Look in the second half of Genesis 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be contrary to, or for, depending on your translation, your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this is a difficult phrase to interpret uh, in the particular original language. The word translated contrary to could also be translated toward or against or for. It's the same Hebrew construct, though, as we see in Genesis chapter 4. So look over in Genesis chapter 4, where God calls Cain to the carpet and warns him of the dangers of sin's overpowering destruction. Look at Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7, the same Hebrew wordplay of desire for and the rule. Genesis 4, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary or for or against, same Hebrew word there, to you, but you must rule over it. So here in Genesis 3 and 4, this Hebrew parallelism going on, we should see that the frustration that the woman will feel towards the man in many ways is the same frustration and tension that sin wants over Cain's life. We see that the woman's desires in her fallen nature, her heart, and the man's rule, his headship, will both fall short of what God originally intended. Their marriage was to display together a loving authority on the part of the man and trusting submission on the part of the woman. But those postures for all of us will never feel natural again left in our fallen bodies. That means this, because of the fall, men by nature will either become passive in their leadership, like Adam was in the garden, and the woman will enviously desire his headship role. She'll want to wear the pants in the marriage. Or men will naturally become oppressive in their marriage, in their leadership. And the woman will resent him and become bitter and fearful of his leadership. Either way, the complexities of Husbands and wives in marriage will not feel natural and complementary in our fallen state. As we'll see shortly in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, uh, why does Paul command husbands to love their wives? 
Why does Paul command wives to submit to their husbands? Well, I think at one level, he's just simply reiterating what should have been natural in God's good plan in the beginning. To see those roles as a part of God's creation should have been for each other's joy. But Paul has to command and teach because it's not natural to us in that way. But friends, this is what becomes clear. In Genesis chapter 3, both the woman and the man, men and women, wives and husbands, all need to be redeemed. And the hope of this passage in Genesis 3, where it seems dark and dim, frustrating and discouraging, there is a hope of a promise. Look at Genesis 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 15. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see this hope, this, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel being proclaimed will come as an offspring who will conquer the serpent. She will know pain and childbearing and death has entered the world, but a child will come who will one day deal death a fatal blow. You know, some have wrongly interpreted and argued from Scripture that in chapter 3, well, now we have the fall, so you just basically be what you want to be, be what you feel like you want to be. If the wife wants to be the head and the man wants to be the helper or a man wants to be a woman or a woman wants to be a man, it doesn't matter because it's all messed up now anyway. A lot of liberal preachers believe that today. There's actually one in this town that I have found out about. However, upon a careful reading and faithful interpretation of Scripture, we have to disagree with that conclusion. Just because sin has entered the world, it doesn't mean that we erase how God originally made us. Just because marriages can be bad doesn't mean that marriage is bad. Just because husbands can be oppressive or abusive doesn't mean that there aren't really good husbands or vice versa with wives. What we see here in Genesis 2, we see here in Genesis 3, is not God erasing how he made men and women or husbands and wives, uh, but how he will redeem it, how he will make it right again. You see, as Christians, we should never be surprised then when we look at Genesis 3, by the brokenness and confusion in our world regarding gender and sexuality, or even marriage for that matter, it should not surprise you that you struggle with bitterness towards a father who treated your mother poorly, or a mother who treated your father poorly. Domination, disorder, disorientation, deceitful desires, dysphoria, all of these things are the consequences of original sin. We have all experienced the effects of the fall in our life. And that means as Christians, we can respond to these realities with grace, with understanding, but also with confidence. We can look in Scripture and agree with how bad 
sin has distorted God's good design, but we can also look at it with hope, knowing that the fall isn't the end of the story. Which leads to letter number C, redemption in Christ. Redemption in Christ. Okay, Genesis 3.15 talked about a seed or an offspring coming from a woman who would one day deal Satan, sin, and death a fatal blow. Well, who is the seed of the woman? Well, he would come as the eternal son of God. Jesus Christ stepped into time and human history, taking on human flesh as a man. A real man. Not one who appeared to be a man, not a ghost-like man, but a real man. Yet, Jesus was born of a woman. A virgin woman. He is the promised offspring here in Genesis 3.15. Scripture presents Christ as the second Adam, the perfect man. That's what the Apostle Paul does in the New Testament. We look at Adam as the one who was made in God's image, as a true man, and yet because of the fall, he is not the perfect man. That would come in the person of Christ. As Colossians 1.15 says, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In the deepest, fullest sense, Jesus offered his life as a perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus rose from the dead, and he, Jesus calls all men and women alike to repent and believe in him. Those who trust in him will be made a new creation, and they are now united to him. So now that Christ has redeemed us from the curse, how does the gospel message, who Christ is, what he came to do in our lives for God's glory, how does that affect the way we relate to one another? How does the creation account in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 factor in how we think about marriage today? Open your Bibles to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Genesis 1 and 2 was God's good creation, good and perfect gift of gender and marriage. Sin entered this world in Genesis 3 on. We start to see the coming of Christ the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the power of Christ, how the New Testament writers say to apply who Jesus is and what he came to do to our marriages, or in our lives, even through our marriages. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, okay, he's now quoting Genesis 2.24, right, where we just looked at. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here, Paul lays out explicit commands, just right down the pipeline clear, for how wives and husbands who have been redeemed by Christ should relate to their spouses. He gives them the motivation for doing it, and he gives them the explanation for why they should do it. So what are those basic commands? Wives, I want to speak to you now. As your husband's complimentary helpmate, you were called by Jesus to submit under the leadership of your husband. As you first submit to Christ and rely upon his strength in all things as a daughter of the Most High God and a co-heir with Christ, you were also to adopt an attitude of readiness to yield to and support your husband's headship. A readiness to respond to him with respectful words, full of wisdom and grace, and through the fruitful witness of a godly life that commends the beauty of the gospel. As a wife, you are given the stewardship from God to follow your husband's leadership by placing him in affection and devotion as the number one priority of all human relationships in your life. That's more than your children. That's more of your future grandchildren, your mom and dad, or your best friends. Therefore, your desire should be to build up your husband for his spiritual good, as well as to provide wise counsel and encouragement for him. As you patiently help him, in his calling to lead the family. Now, depending on your family's financial needs and current stages in life uh, with children, you should use your skills and competence to help contribute to the overall welfare of your household. Uh, so under the leadership of your husband and in unison with the goals of your family, uh, you are to manage your household with strength and dignity as you fear the Lord and show respect to your husband. That's a lofty calling. That's a high calling. And that is a beautiful calling from your God. Husbands, now we get put under the hot lamp, including moi. As your wife's leader, and as my wife's leader, and marriage covenant head, you, sir, are called to love your wife through the selfless, sacrificial care 
of shepherding your wife's heart in the word of God. Your pastor should not be the only man that she ever hear God's word from and applied to her life. You, dear brother, as myself, have been given that charge to guide your wife in the scriptures and to lead her in prayer. Throughout the course of your marriage, you are also called to highly esteem and cherish her, prioritizing her above all other human relationships in affection and devotion, more than children, more than grandchildren, more than your parents, more than your buddies, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And similar to Adam, in the Garden of Eden, you were called by God to use your skills and opportunities you've been given to work in order to provide for her needs. Your eagerness and my eagerness to provide for our wives and our humble sacrifice to position her to prosper spiritually and relationally is a part of the mantle we carry as husbands. So, if you have children, or you have grandchildren, but I'll stick with children, if you have children, your children should see the increasing clarity of how much you love their mother, especially more than your hobbies, your job, or any other person in your life. In other words, the greatest thing that you can give your children, apart from the gospel, is an example of loving their mother. That's what a child should desire and see in our lives. But brothers, when you and I hear that word headship or authority or leadership, be very cautious how you use that authority. You see, our headship is never to be used as a club to force your wife into submission to you. Ever. If you're abusing your wife with your words or your hands, you need to repent. God hates it. You need to seek help if your anger is getting the best of you. Never use your authority to hurt someone under your care. On the contrary, our headship is a delegated authority from God that you and I one day will have to give an account to God for, for how we used it. You see, it's a delegated authority. In other words, we're not God. <laughs> when we speak, it's not God speaking. We are entrusted with an authority. Like as a pastor, I am not some kind of Protestant pope. <laughs> I am a servant leader who's been given a delegated authority. In other words, I'm answering to an authority higher than myself. And the same goes for husbands. It's an authority that's given to us by God to bless our wives. Did you hear that? Bless our wives, not burden our wives. Like sunshine and water on a flower in springtime, with the help of God, we are to nourish and cherish our wives. Ephesians 5, verse 29. As Christ does the church. There is no greater love that's ever been shown this world than how Jesus has loved 
his bride. Therefore, our leadership should never, let me underscore boldface and circle it, never be marked by harshness or bitter neglect, but rather humility and honor, love and understanding. Because Peter says, if we don't, our prayers will be hindered. You ever feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling? Sometimes check to see if your relationship with your wife is intact. That's what it says in 1 Peter 3, 7. A willingness to take initiative and serve her, not demanding to be served by her. Matthew Henry gave a good word to husbands from Genesis 2.22. If you want to have a better understanding of what it means to be the head of your wife, it says this, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near to his heart. That's what it means to be the head of our wives. But why are these commands here? Why does Paul say, husbands, love your wives? Why does he say, wives, submit and respect your husbands? I mean, is it arbitrary? Is it just kind of being Bible fundamentalists that just kind of give a bunch of rules and let's just kind of relive maybe the 1950s of leave it to beaver? (laughs) Is that really what this is all about? Well, no, Paul tells us that our role as husband and wives is actually displaying something bigger than our marriages themselves. Our marriages are to reveal something about God, about Christ, and about his bride, the church. You could even say that my marriage and your marriage, whether we're in the first six months or in the 50th year, we are walking billboards. We are walking displays that are projecting something. It's a megaphone telling the world something of what Jesus has done for us. What is that something? What is our marriages ultimately pointing towards? What are our marriages saying to our lost neighbors and families when they interact with us? Well, this is what Paul says God's intent is in our Christian marriages. Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Again, Paul, picking up from what we heard in Genesis 2, says that our marriages are to be a display. It's imperfect. It's dim. But it's a real picture of this covenantal, promise-keeping love between Christ and the church. Beloved, that gives us something to be motivated about in our marriages than simply a good date or looking happy in a picture. God has given us a greater picture for why our marriages exist. Our marriages exist to show off the glory of God and how he's made men and women differently, but also of equal value. According to Paul's words in Ephesians 5, a wife is to submit to her husband 
as to the Lord. That means that a wife's concern, her greatest concern, is always first and foremost to love and obey King Jesus, not her husband. So if her husband, sisters, if your husband tells you to do something that would be sin or to violate your conscience or would be harmful to you, you must disobey your husband. You always first obey God. If your husband intentionally does something to harm or hurt you, you're not to be a perpetual doormat under his tyranny. You should get help. You should not be in that difficult marriage alone. You should find a safe refuge in that difficult situation. Though it might surprise you, a wife's motivation to submit isn't as much as even making her husband happy as much as it is her own holiness and ultimately might even lead your husband to Christ if he's not a believer. She is most concerned about pleasing her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and in doing so, she bears that beautiful and precious, quiet and gentle spirit which God says is very precious to him. 1 Peter 3, verse 4. Likewise, Paul goes on to describe the type of love a husband is to demonstrate towards his wife. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means a husband's greatest love and act of obedience is first to King Jesus before it is his wife. So if his wife, or if your wives, brothers, seek to lead you into sin, much like Eve did with Adam and the serpent, then the husband must stand firm and resist such a temptation. A husband should not be a soundboard or echo chamber for his wife's sin. He must know the distinction between hearing from God and hearing from someone else. If a wife continually tears her husband down and nags him to no end, He must not harm her or slander her to others, but he also may need to get counsel from others on how to face a difficult marriage. So brothers, regardless, if you're married to the Proverbs 31 woman and she's beautiful on the outside and she's beautiful on the inside, or you're married to the foolish wife that Job had, a husband's motivation for loving his wife is not so much for her happiness, though You do want to make your wife happy as much as it is your own holiness. Your love for her could lead her to a saving knowledge of Christ if she isn't a believer. He is most concerned that his leadership, his authority shows a picture, though an imperfect one, of Christ's love for her. And what kind of love is that? Early church father Chrysostom, if you want to do what I've done to kind of be reminded every week of this high calling, brothers, I print out this quote, and I had it at my computer at my last church. I'm still trying to figure out where to put it in my new office. But listen to this quote by Chrysostom. He says, do you wish that your wife would submit to you as the church does to Christ? Then care for her as Christ does for the church. And if it is necessary that you should give your life for her, 
or be cut into pieces a thousand times or endure anything whatsoever, then refuse it not. Yes, for if you were to suffer in these dreadful ways for your wife, you still would not have done what Christ did for you. For you did this for one with whom you were already united, but he did it for her who until then had only rejected and hated him. There's a mic drop Saturday morning quote. Let me leave you with two words of encouragement. Whether you have a difficult marriage for many decades or a honeymoon of a marriage that only gets better with time. Amen, Roy? Here we go. We all need to be reminded, number one, marriage is a temporary gift from God that he gives to some for this life. Jesus said that there will be no marriage in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Brothers and sisters, most likely one of you, you or your spouse, will die before your other your spouse. It's very unlikely that you'll both die at the same time. That means one of you will depart from this life and one one of you will stay behind. We're all going to run into that. We're all going to face it. And we have to be reminded that marriage is not forever. Just this past week, I've been given news from two different, very well-known Christian preachers in the world, Tim Keller and Vody Bauckham. Tim Keller has pancreatic cancer. Vody Bauckham has just been diagnosed with an almost fatal heart failure. Both of these men have said in their testimonies, The things that now are becoming at the forefront of their minds are the little things they may have taken for granted with their wife. I've even heard that many times when I've talked to widows and widowers. I wish I could hold their hand again. I wish I could just go for a walk with them again. I wish I could just hear their voice again. You see, we're all going to have that happen in this life at some point. Marriage is temporary. So that's why you should enjoy life with the spouse God has given you while you have it because it is a temporary gift on this side of heaven. Number two, marriage is a temporary gift from God that he uses for our sanctification in this life. In other words, God gives us marriage to make us more like Jesus. I don't remember much of premarital counseling from Pastor Brooks But one thing he said that Julie and I can quote all the time, Julie, what did Brooks tell us that marriage is going to be like? Heavenly sandpaper. You get two sinners together, see, I already know she's going to answer because that's all we remember because that's what came true. All the rough edges about us we didn't even know we had until you got together and God's using each other, your strengths and your weaknesses, your sins and your shortcomings to smooth each other out. But at the beginning, it's a little rough and yet, Romans 8, 28, and 29 includes our marriages. What do we see in Romans 8, 28, and 29? And we know that for those who love God, all things, including marriage, work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. No matter where you're at in your marriage this morning, know that our God is working all things in and through your marriage to make you and I more like Christ 
And this, beloved, is more eternally important than even having an easy spouse to be married to. Christopher Ashe puts it in perspective for us when he says this, the key to a good marriage isn't to pursue a good marriage, but to pursue the honor of God. So what is the foundation your marriage is being built upon? Is it God's word? Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Ephesians 5. Or is it something else? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take what was said now and that was true and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.